Our Father, let that be the, not only the prayer on our lips, but the meditation of our heart, that our lives would in fact be given over fully to you, because you have spared, uh, you have kept nothing from us, you have given us everything in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so our Father, we want you to know this morning that it's our desire to give back to you what you rightfully deserve, which is our lives completely. So I pray, Lord, that you would move our hearts in that direction as you now challenge us from your word. Because we know, Lord, that um, everywhere in the scriptures is your expectation of us that we would surrender our lives. Who would come after me? The one who would deny himself, take up his cross and follow. May that be the Reality, not just the statement that we make, but the reality of how we live, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is the most important thing on your agenda today? I'm asking a question. Hmm? Being here, no, that's very important, but not the most important. I'm going to keep asking you this question until you get it right. What is the most important thing? Glorifying God. The most important thing on your agenda today is to glorify God. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. It doesn't get more basic than that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. The most important thing you have on your agenda today is to glorify Jesus Christ. With that in mind, I'm inviting you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians as we wrap up our study on big hope. Although the letters of the Thessalonian letters are full of hope, as Paul signs off, in fact, as he signs off of both letters, the first letter to the Thessalonians and the second letter to the Thessalonians, he he knows that the tough times that, and trials that they are going through are not likely to go away anytime soon. And he also points out that there are those who are really abusing big hope. There's concerns that he has that have been circulating around to him, obviously, about some people that are, that are mistreating their salvation. In fact, um, some of them are far too skewed on the side of, of taking it easy and, and um, in fact, as they look to the second coming of Christ, they've sort of just mailing in their membership card on life. Instead of passionately living out their salvation, they've sort of pulled up a chaise lounge and they're going to sort of fold their arms behind their heads and wait for the coming of the Lord with a do not disturb sign on. In fact, um, it's kind of like those uh, people you, you, you've probably seen who, who some big concert comes to Toronto and they line up for days. You're wondering, like, how can anybody do that? Don't they have a life? And that's what basically Paul is talking about with these, these people who are waiting for the second coming of Christ. They're sort of lined up, not doing anything. In fact, uh, some of them are really, in so doing, 
abusing the rights of their salvation. I can do anything I want and you can't do anything to me because I'm saved. Sort of become salvation rights activists. We'll talk about that in a little further down. But I want to this morning from uh, a little end of the section in chapter 2 and, and uh, the end of chapter 3 bring to your attention three important statements, I think, as we, as we sign off with the Thessalonian letters to clarify the big hope of our salvation. I, I'd sort of call this sort of some, some of Paul's end times end notes that I think are really crucial for us. But let, let's read, read from God's word and uh, set the, uh, let, let's set the, uh, the place in the scriptures that we want to talk about this morning. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I want to read a couple of verses there and then go to the end of chapter 3. But we ought always to thank God for you. Brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. In verse 6, he says, of chapter 3, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat at anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Well, there are three, um, as I said, I think important, important clarifying statements about our salvation that I want to point out this morning. And they're... Particular phrases, we're going to look at three of them this morning. Particular phrases. One is the sanctifying work of the Spirit, belief in the truth, and sharing in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are key to us understanding how to live out our salvation. To understand the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to understand belief in the truth, and to understand about being a participant or sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ. Which actually brings me back to the very first statement I asked you about. What's my most important thing to do today? What's the most important thing on your agenda today? Is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk to you about your salvation this morning because it's very crucial that you don't rest on it in an inappropriate way. That you don't get lax because of the coming of Christ and miss the point of what it means to be saved and to live out our salvation. So let me just say the first statement that I want to make, and I've written out in your notes today a couple of long statements, because you may have to digest them a little bit. You may have to look at them and think about them. But I want to say this, that resting 
presumptuously on escape is another gospel. That the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back again, we believe. And it's a glorious thing. We are awaiting it. We are longing for it. We're looking for it. But to have an attitude that, that all my salvation is about simply escaping to go to heaven is, a, is to miss the point of salvation. That uh, getting saved so I can go to heaven is certainly true, but if that's all I think about it, it's, sim- it's simply selfish. Let me make this statement to you. The purpose of salvation consists of significantly more than escape or deliverance from the coming wrath. It anticipates so loving the truth now that its attendant believing acceptance plays out in a particular lifestyle, a living out of all the call into Christ's family entails, including many trials. That's why Paul could say to them, stand firm. But I want you to know that the the purpose of your salvation goes beyond simply being lifted out of this trials and troubles and tribulations of this world and being whisked off to heaven. Otherwise, we would have all been gone at the moment of our salvation. But we're here. What does that mean? What do we have to do about being here? That's why Paul says to them, so stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. We don't just get saved to go to heaven. The content of the sanctifying work of the Spirit is whatever it takes for the Holy Spirit to make your external and internal world increase your spiritually excellent usefulness in this present life and for the life to come. We get saved so that we can serve God. Here's the problem, and uh, it began with the the teachings of of, uh, John the Baptist early on in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 3. There were some who thought they could simply escape hell by somehow giving some assent to the traditions either of Jesus Christ or something that had to do with Christ. And, and John the Baptist taught that that just isn't so. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were showing up. He was baptizing people in the name of Jesus Christ and for the, for the, 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 um, the salvation to come. And, he, and he, right, he says this to them. It says, but when, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, we're we're in the right line for salvation. He says, listen, who warned you to try and get out of hell, to sign up for baptism, when in fact you show no signs of repentance? You show nothing in your life. The the reality of salvation is not some some sort of uh, quick... um, uh, assent to the uh, idea of God existing or of Jesus Christ uh, being crucified and then uh, I've got my ticket to heaven and my escape from the coming wrath or the judgment of God so I've, I've got that all taken care of. That, that's no different than the, the kind of Pharisee type salvation that they were trying to foist on, the John, on John the Baptist. He said, who warned you to try and escape hell? You think you can come and be baptized and, and, and show no signs in your life of repentance? Make no 180 degree change in your life and actually have salvation? That's what some people think. 
That's the reason that uh, John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, that, that many drift away. The reason that many drift away is because they, in fact, if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But the salvation that is taught in the scriptures, the salvation that the apostle Paul is drilling into them, the salvation that he's talking about in spite of the fact that Jesus is going to come and save us and take us to heaven, the salvation that that Paul is talking about doesn't mean that one sits back and and, and does nothing in terms of living out a, a life of change, of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, of God making changes in your life. While the salvation of Christ does save us from ultimate destruction, It first saves us from sin and self so we can increasingly be like Jesus before we meet him face to face. So Paul writes to them in this, the end of chapter 2, and he says, this this is how you were saved. You, You were rescued from being an object of the wrath of God to being an object of his affection." He says here, from the beginning in verse 13, God chose you to be saved. By the sanctifying or through the transforming work of the Spirit of God. The evidence of repentance in your life. And by the way, chosen is the middle voice in the verb tense, which means that God took you for himself. You were hand-picked, a hand-picked and plucked treasure from the department store of life and brought into his amazing kingdom. But God's reign demands genuine repentance in your life or it brings judgment, one or the other. And that's why Paul could write to them and say, I thank God for you, brothers. That's how we ought to view each other. Because uh, in doing so, we are expressing approval of God's choice to bring people into his kingdom like you. And so we look at one another and we, when we say we thank God for you, God's very pleased with that because we are giving approval to his choice. You know what it is when you purchase something, you bring it home, you want everybody to like it, right? Look what I got. Then comes home, look at this, isn't this wonderful? She wants me to like it. And I say, yeah, that's very nice. I, I thank the Lord that you went out and spent all my money today. It's just great, it's just great. You want approval. Well, this thanking God for each other is, is our way of, of showing that we, um, we bless God, God's choice. God, by the way, loves his choice. Do you understand that? Loves you. And and the point of this through the sanctifying work of the Spirit is, is not so we could just simply be rescued from the trials and troubles of this world, but so that we could live in the trials and troubles of this world in a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ through the transforming work of the Spirit. God set you apart and then set you up to believe. That's what it says here in the text. God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Not because you had anything to do with 
setting that up for yourself. Certainly not for what he could get. He saved you for what he could give to you. The Spirit of God to, to, to move into your life and dramatically transform you and change you. To mark your life out as his own. But resting presumptuously on escape alone is another gospel, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second most important thing that I want you to know as we close down these teachings here is that I think resting presumptuously on this idea of chosen or election is reckless. From our human perspective... We are not meant to see the hope of our salvation secure in the divine choice in eternity past to save us, but rather in the real-time ongoing action of belief in the truth. Hearing God's call to welcome the truth and living it daily, it was that action that affected saving faith and that action that secures the genuineness of the Christian life. I know that's a mouthful. I, I know that's probably a run-on sentence for all the English teachers that might be here. But I'm telling you that, that it is so imperative for us that we not simply say, well, you know what, as I read the text and I realize that, that God chose me to be saved, I could just pull up a chaise lounge and it doesn't matter how I live, I can live any way I want. God has chosen me, brought me into his kingdom, and, and so I'm, I'm fine. No, no, it, it, it says right in the text that he chose you to believe in the truth. And that has a special look about it. It was that we welcomed the truth of the gospel into our lives that affected salvation in the first place. And that's what secures the genuineness of your Christian life. Otherwise, you'll get spiritually sloppy. And some people are spiritually saucy. I'm going to talk to you about that in a few moments. But the salvation that John the Baptist preached, the salvation that the Apostle Paul preaches, the salvation that Jesus Christ preached includes a condition whereby your repentance shows up in your belief in the gospel. That I formally was not believing the gospel and I made a 180 degree change to welcome the truth, to believe the gospel and to show it by living it. That's what it's talking about here. Our calling, God's choosing of us, is only as legitimate as our believing. And our believing is only as legitimate as our living. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who calls Lord, Lord, belongs to me. But what did he say? But only those who do the Father's will. Who practice the belief of the truth. It's not those who can yell out my name. It's those who actually walk according to the spirit. It's those who actually walk according to the teachings of the scriptures. The genuineness of one's salvation is not based upon religious traditions. Or the presumptuousness of freedom from religious accompaniments. But on the basis of how one handles the commands of Christ. Let me take you to Jesus' teachings himself in Mark chapter 7, verse 6 through 9. Listen to Jesus. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Make no mistake about it. The end time contrast that the Apostle Paul makes to the Thessalonians in both of these letters is between those who actually welcomed and loved the truth. In fact, if you, I want you to see for yourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he sets the distinctions here in the letter from the very beginning. In verse 6, he says, You welcomed the message with joy. Over against, in the second letter, chapter 2, verse 10, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's the contrast that's set up between those who welcome the truth, the message with joy in their lives, over against those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So, um, who are you like? Who do you live like? Um, there's a lot of confusion, I think, in this whole idea of freedom in Christ that apparently comes with our salvation. Let's understand what freedom in Christ is. It comes with holding to his teachings. That's what we're free to do. Christian freedom is freedom from doing what I want or used to want so I can do what Christ wants. What pleases the Lord. Uh, This is what Christian life is all about. Uh, I have been liberated by salvation from my sin and myself so that I no longer live for my sin or live for myself, but rather live for my Savior. That's the distinction that's made in the Christian life. There are some new Christian traditions that are being encouraged in terms of freedom in Christ. It's, it's a form of a, a new antinomianism or a, a world-like living that says, I, I can live any way I want because I'm free in Christ now. And it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm waiting for the second coming of Christ. He's going to come and get me. I'm saved. I can do whatever I want. Pass me another Labatt's. We need to beware of what, I, what I'm going to call spiritual rebellion punkism or the spiritual rights activists who, who say, look at me, how free I am. What, free in the sense that you can do anything you want? You can live for your flesh and, and be rescued and saved as well? I wouldn't bank on it. That's how the world lives. The world lives uh, uh, for its sin And for itself. Paul doesn't want any of that. As as he signs off on this letter and as he tells them that they have this great security in their salvation, this choosing from God, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, he wants to make sure they understand that it comes also with the reality that you live out the truth, that you believe the truth of Jesus Christ. That radical change Christianity brings in a 
new freedom that's unshackled from the sinful, selfish nature to do radically pleasing things in Christ's name. That's what freedom is. Not to brag that I can, that I can, I've now accepted Jesus and now I can go back to living like the world. That's not what he's talking about. Anybody can do that. No, he's saying that, that I've now been liberated from sin and self so that now I have freedom to please Jesus Christ. That's the nature of the salvation that the Apostle Paul preached. Anything else is a return to slavery. Not freedom. A slave to myself and my flesh, doing what I want. Or a slave to my sinfulness. We weren't saved to live like that. Don't call that freedom. And whatever you do, don't call it Christian freedom. So that's why Paul says, in the name of the Lord, in verse 6, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. The third and final reality here this morning is is that becoming complacent spiritually or idle is contrary to the commands of Christ. Paul says, this brings me to something that, that I must insist upon in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says it at the end of both of his letters. With respect to spiritual security or, or a secure salvation. Don't get sloppy, he says. Don't don't think that you can get saucy spiritually and and this thing's going to work out all right for you. Don't don't think you can get complacent spiritually. Because understand this, the reward of salvation, verse 14, is that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a completely different reality than the life we used to live outside of Jesus Christ. When we live for our sin and ourselves. That's a completely different picture. And and by the way, while this participation in the glory of Christ may happen in a flash. It is expected that salvation itself, this journey that we walk each day, will put us well in the way. Well on the way to uh, living uh, in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ and, and in, in including in our lives what it is to participate and share in the glory of Christ. Which means, by the way, the awesome, weighty perfection of Jesus. And it's only secured through robust spirituality. Not sloppy spirituality. Not saucy spirituality. I can do whatever I want but robust spirituality. This is why you were called. Notice this, verse 14. He called you. He brought you into the kingdom of Christ that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've probably all in Sunday school or somewhere along the line memorized the verse, for all have come short of the glory of God. Well, salvation is the repair of that problem. That we might increasingly 
invest our lives in the transforming work of the Spirit of God, that we may increasingly know what it is to share in the glory of Christ. So that people will look at us increasingly saying, you are increasingly more and more Christ-like. Now, as I said, what, what Paul sees in the twinkling of an eye, in a flash, when Jesus comes, we'll, we'll all be taken and transformed fully into this glorious state. But we're to be well on our way. Salvation is for the purpose of being on our way. It wasn't just to escape, but for glory. This is why you were called. And so he talks to them about this robust spirituality. Four very important things. He says, you've got to keep away, first of all, from every brother who's idle, does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. You need to distance yourself from freeloaders and spiritual slackers who just live to escape. The ataktos, he calls them. There are many ways to describe these people using the original word. It, it could be unruly or disorderly or undisciplined or insubordinate or impulsive or irresponsible or lazy. But this is not the kind of living you learn from Christian teachings, whatever it is, however you describe it. I, I think we've, we've come up to learn that Christianity can attract freeloaders. It can't. People walk in and they realize, you know what? You have to love me. And you have to take me in. Because Jesus is going to make you. That's what what Christianity is all about, right? So it's very easy for people to become freeloaders and realize, hey, Christians are really nice people, or at least we're supposed to be. Christians are really generous people. Christians are really gracious people. Christians are really kind people. And so to the, the scam artist out there, we're, we're an easy touch. Paul says anybody who calls himself a Christian and lives idly or doesn't live according to the teachings, you, you need to distance yourself from them. He talks about admonishing them. Now, distance yourself, by the way. This word means uh, to widen the gap or pull in the sails. It's like... Um, you know, if you're sailing together in a boat and one person pulls in the sails, the sailboat's going to keep going and yours is going to sort of slow down and stop. It's like, look at, dude, I don't want to be anywhere near you, so just keep on going. I'm going to kind of slow my pace. I don't want to be around you. Why? Why do we withdraw from close fellowship for anybody who's living like that? Because they're making Jesus look bad, that's why. And we're supposed to be glorifying Christ. We're supposed to be making him look good. They're making him look bad. So you just show disapproval of sloppy spirituality and the spirit of love, by the way. See verse 15? Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. He goes on as well to say in verses 7 through 9 that, that the robust, the person with robust spirituality works hard and doesn't exercise all their rights and benefits, necessarily grabbing every possible crumb to which he might be entitled. That's how we look different. Paul says, look, I worked among you. You yourselves know that how hard I worked. I, I wasn't idle. I wasn't slacking. I wasn't lazy. I wasn't freeloading. Even though, by the way, he says I could have, 
Jesus himself taught that, that the laborer always receives his wages from the labor. And if that labor is the gospel, you receive your wages from the gospel. So the Apostle Paul says, I, I had every right to receive my wages. I, I had every right for you to take care of me because I was teaching you. But I, I chose not to do that in light of all the lazy spiritual people I saw around, spiritually lazy people I saw around me who were making Jesus look bad. I decided that it would be better... If, if I lived a very careful, diligent, hardworking life among you, so that people would say, hey, maybe that's the way we ought to live. If you're going to err on the extreme position in life, err on working hard. He takes extreme care, the Apostle Paul. The freeloaders are ruining the gospel work. And by the way, let's... It's very important for us as Christians to not look like we're out there grabbing every possible thing we can get. Just because you're entitled to something, just because you have the right to something, doesn't mean you should grab hold of it all the time. That's why the teachers of the Old Testament were, don't, don't go out and, 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 uh, and get every last piece of harvest off your field. Leave a little bit around the edges. And so Paul teaches that. He says in verse 10, though, don't aid and abet sloppy laziness by giving charity to people who won't work. Who won't work. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Uh, you know, um, by the way, Paul is choosing not to exercise his entitlements, but that's not the message of the text. It was his personal mission. Refusing to work is the issue of the text. Not how you're compensated. And as it says in the text here, because idleness leads to busyness, or busybodiness. Not a word, but one we'll make up today. Idleness leads to busybodiness. Why? Because we are meant to be busy. If we aren't busy doing something, we'll be busy in somebody else's business. That's what happens. And it's a warning to retired people. <laughs> you can become busybodies very easily. That's why my wife never wants me to retire. She thinks I will become a real busybody around the house. Idleness leads to that. Creativity can turn to negativity because these people were idle and they were going around checking out everybody else's business, probably convincing them to become disorderly in their conduct as well. That happens because we were made to be busy. That's how God made us. No second coming watching, sitting on your chaise lounge, hands folded. And then he says to them, the fourth thing he says to them, never, never tire, but in terms of your activity, and never tire of doing what is right. Verse 13, never tire of doing what is right. That's what robust spirituality is all about. By the way, what is right in and of itself, this word means, what is right in and of itself and what is perceived to be right. 
both those things. You should work diligently toward. You should work diligently toward always doing what is right and even what is perceived to be right. I want to keep coming back. Why? Why? Why Why is that important? Because we are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. It's always about that. It's from the very beginning. What is the most important thing you will do today on your your agenda? It is bringing glory to Jesus Christ. So never grow tired of doing what is right. Not only what is right in and of itself, but what is perceived to be right. Because everything we are to do is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And so he says, settle down. Get a job. And take care of your own expenses. And I would say that on the basis of this teaching in this scripture to our benevolent department at Calvary Baptist Church, if a person won't work, they don't get any handouts. That's what the teaching is here. Not if they can't work. Or if they may be out of work and trying to get work. Hear what I'm saying. Hear what the Bible's saying. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Because you know when you get real hungry as a guy? You'll work. You'll work. So that, let's wrap this up. So that outsiders will clearly see the distinctiveness of genuine passion about Jesus' glory now and fullness to come. And that the so-called insiders will either be shamed into repentance or exposed as phonies. That's what it says here. Do not associate with him, verse 14, in order that he may feel ashamed. Why, why, is, the, why is this distance thing? I said to you because it's, he's making Jesus look bad or she's making Jesus look bad. But this distance thing also brings shame. And shame goes one of two ways. It will either lead to repentance or anger. If you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, shame always leads you to repentance. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, shame will lead you to anger. And anger will take you out. And Paul's saying, you know, one way or the other, let's flush them out. Let's find out if they're real or not. And so he says to them, now may the Lord of peace, verse 16, himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with all of you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's about the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit. Don't rest presumptuously on escape. That's a different gospel. You are here to live out your life honoring Jesus Christ. Resting presumptuously on chosen or election is reckless. The security of your salvation is based upon the fact that you are living the truth in your life every day. And complacent or sloppy or saucy spirituality, there's no place for that in the Christian life. That's not what Christ taught. That's not what Paul taught. That's not what anybody has taught in the scriptures. The reward of our salvation is to be like Jesus Christ. 
It takes robust spirituality for that to happen. Father, thank you for um, bringing us to the end of this important, um, these important letters. We've been rejoicing the big hope of the coming of Christ. But Lord, as with any teaching, it can be taken to the extreme and we can become off balance so caught up, so swept up in the, in the coming of Christ and the escape from uh, uh, the, the trials and the tribulations of life that we grow slack in our spiritual lives. We, we think we've um, got our ticket to heaven and uh, the rest doesn't matter. Nothing could be further from the truth and we know that, Lord, from your word. So help us not to be sloppy in this beautiful and amazing gift of salvation that you've given us through Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. Let us never take for granted and live our lives in a lazy way. But let us, Father, stand firm. Let us love the teachings of God's word. Let us welcome the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. For in these things, we make our salvation secure. Not because it isn't, but because that's what you've called those who are truly saved into. May we walk before you with passion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those people who have a big hope in the coming of the Lord and are looking for that, have a, have a certain look about themselves. They live a life that, that reflects the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that He is actually changing their lives from what they formerly were to what they are becoming in Christ Jesus. They are people who, who have a passion to believe the truth and, and live it out, not just speak from their lips, but you see it in their lives. They, they actually live like they believe the truth of Jesus Christ. They also are not complacent about their spirituality. They don't take their salvation for granted. They are people who are diligent and passionate about how they live. Not idle, not disorderly, not unruly, not undisciplined, but diligent living in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ so that as people look at them, they see a Christ-likeness and a change that's compelling, it's attractive, it draws people. That's who the people are that have the big hope of the salvation of the coming of our Lord. And He is coming soon. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Father, thank You so much for Your truth. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit that enables us to welcome that truth into our lives and to live it out. Lord, I pray that none of us here would be idle or lazy or sloppy about our spirituality or saucy about our so-called freedoms. But Lord, that we might quite the opposite. Be those people who are so longing for the coming of the Lord that we are cooperating with the work of the Spirit of God who is taking us from the state of being fallen short of the glory of God to becoming more and more like Christ until we see him face to face and become like him. This is what we long for, Lord. And only your work in our life can accomplish that. So we welcome it. We invite it. 
May we cooperate with it. In Jesus' name, amen.